All right, let's get started. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that uh, we can gather this morning and open your word together. And I pray that uh, our study today would be uh, useful and fruitful, beneficial, uh, that it would also uh, point us more and more to Christ as our Lord and Savior. And we thank you uh, that, uh, that he is the one through the Holy Spirit that reveals and illuminates uh, your truth to us. Uh, so we pray that you would do that uh, for your sake and for your glory. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so we're looking at uh, the covenant of works uh, in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Uh, last week, uh, we dove pretty deeply uh, into Genesis chapter 1. And I was re- reminded uh, this past week about the importance of the covenant of works. Uh, yesterday, we had Presbytery meeting. And uh, the nature of the covenant came up a couple different times. One, we had a uh, a man that was coming for licensure for preaching, and he preached on uh, Genesis or Exodus chapter 24, which is this incredible passage. After God has delivered uh, the the words of uh, the commandments and the words of the covenant to Moses, he delivers them to the people, uh, and then God invites. Uh, Moses and the elders to come up and have a meal with him. And, and it's chapter 24, verses 9 through 11, just, just three verses that are just mind-blowing in their significance and the things that go along with it. And I was just reminded of the importance of what's happening there because, again, let me, let me say that, let me, I'm setting you up for what's going to come in a couple of different, in a, in a couple of weeks. So, God invited Moses and the elders to sit in his presence and have a meal with him. So just wrap your head around that. Exodus 24. What do you know about God? What is God? What's that? He is a spirit. That's right. And yet here's this kind of tangible picture. They can see God. And, they, and Moses gives a description of what it looks like to be in the presence of God. And the elders are there with Moses, and they're eating. Let me ask it this way. What should happen to Moses and the elders in the presence of God? They should be dead, and yet they're sitting in His presence. And I'd never noticed it until yesterday, until the sermon, the reason why that was able to happen. Because just a few verses before, God invites them to come up and have this meal in front of them. He tells Moses, do not let them come up because if they come up, I will kill them. And then a few verses later, God says, it's okay to come up. All right, I'm just throwing that out there, just teasing you a little bit with it. The reason why... They can be in the presence of God is all about the covenant and why the covenant is so important for us. All right, so that was one thing that came up yesterday. Um, Also, secondarily, secondly, um, a question was asked of this uh, this man in in talking about the importance of covenant theology. The question was asked, what is the pastoral implication of covenant theology? What is the pastoral implication of covenant theology? Now, I dealt with that weeks ago uh, whenever we first started talking about covenant theology. Does anybody remember? Does anybody think they want to venture 
an answer. Now, the answer that the man gave yesterday was right, but it was also wrong. All right. What is the really big pastoral importance of covenant theology? Ah! You would have passed the licensure exam. Assurance of salvation. That God has graciously provided for us in His covenants the assurance that we can be in relationship with God. Is this beautiful thing that God has done for us. And that's why we need to go over this and have this solidified for us that we can know, that we can have assurance that we are in, uh, we have been saved from our sin, that we can be in the presence of God because He loves us, because He cares for us. Covenant, the covenant is the reason why that is the case. Assurance of salvation. Okay, I want to make one more comment, something that I... I glossed over, didn't even mention last week, that is very exciting to me. Um, And on your sheet that most of you don't have, I guess, unless you were here last week, because it's the same sheet from last week, if you still have that. But on that, in the introduction, I wanted to talk about um, on their 19th century archaeological discoveries. Um, And I just wanted to mention this because Prior to the 19th century, there was very little um, archaeology that was taking place um, in a rigorous way to understand and to get to um, the historical evidence of the things that we read about in, uh, in the Bible. Uh, there's a movie that just came out. I haven't seen it, but Napoleon. Has anybody seen that movie, Napoleon? Um, there's a scene in that movie where, and I just saw it on the trailer, where Napoleon is firing cannons at the pyramids, okay? He's firing cannons at the pyramids. Um, And Charles saw that trailer, and he goes, come on, Napoleon didn't do that. He never even went to Egypt. And I was like, wow. Charles doesn't realize that one of Napoleon's big things was he was trying to conquer the world, and one of the ways that he wanted to do that was to go into the ancient world, and he wanted to um, kind of take all of their treasures away from the ancient world and take all of those things in order to grow his prestige and all of those things. Now, did Napoleon actually fire cannons at the pyramids? Probably not. But he was there and he did see those things. And because of guys like Napoleon uh, searching for um, the ancient treasures or the treasures of the ancient world, uh, this um, Napoleon and other guys who, who were doing this... Um, there, there was a renewed interest in archaeology because of the things that they were reporting they were finding back then. And so um, a lot of German scholars also started uh, going to the, uh, going to the uh, um, uh, Middle East and, and doing uh, what we would consider archaeology and discovering things that they thought previously did not exist. One of the things that was discovered were these different stone monuments that were set up that would have words on them and language on them. And some of the things that they found were the exact words that we have in our Old Testament regarding different uh, announcements or pronouncements from different kings. Um, The most famous one is the proclamation of King Cyrus that you find two places in our Old Testament. Uh, Once at the end of 2 Chronicles and then once um, at the beginning of... um, of Ezra, and you have this proclamation from, and they, they found this, and, and they realized, well, okay, this, this is what we read about in the Bible, and they, 
they, the more they dug into these things and they, they have done archaeology, they are finding um, evidence of the covenant structures that we have in our scriptures that were made between different kings or, or greater kings and lesser kings um, in, in the ancient world. And so uh, it's fascinating to read about those things and to see how those things are, have developed. It has not been that long since really the science of archaeology was something that was, uh, that, that was started. And, um, and at every place where scholars have said things in the scriptures couldn't exist, they are finding more and more evidence that, no, actually, historically, these things can be validated and backed up uh, with things that they're finding through archaeology. Um, but a lot of, uh, uh, one of the reasons why we see an explosion of an understanding of covenant theology in the 20th century is because of some of these things that they're finding uh, in, in archaeology in the ancient world. Any questions or comments about that? All right, I find, yes, go ahead. So especially in, um, well, the Assyrians and the Babylonians were great record keepers, right? They made records for everything. And, um, and they would copy these things down. And so when, so greater kings and lesser kings, maybe more like, we, uh, maybe not kings in the way that we think of them. But, uh, for example, Abraham and, um, oh, I can't remember the guy's name, uh, Abimelech in, in Genesis uh, chapter 20, chapter, yes, 18 and chapter 20, I believe. Um, Abraham and Abimelech make an agreement with each other. Uh, and, and they have signs and seals related to that agreement. And so here you have two guys. We wouldn't necessarily think of them as great kings or kings. But in the little region that they're, they're, they're basically like warlords, I, I would say. And they're making agreements that are following and tracking with the same structure that we see in places like Genesis 1 and 2 and all that, right? So um, because this is important because in the, especially in the 19th century, uh, well, late 18th century, early 19th century, uh, a lot of German European scholars were, were reading the scriptures basically saying, we don't have any extra biblical evidence that any of these things were ever true or existed. And they would say, these covenant treaties, no one ever did this. And so they, they throw it out. And then later on they discover, oh, no, actually these things were taking place. And so, um, yeah, that, that's my main point in saying that. All right. Any other comments or questions? All right. Um, so look at uh, Genesis chapter 2. We, we talked about covenant of works. What we said, uh, covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. In Genesis chapter 1, you see God create man and woman in his image. And in that, he gives them instructions that Moses called blessings. And you see that in Genesis 1 uh, verse uh, 28, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heaven, and over every little living thing that moves on the earth. And I made a distinction there, or maybe not a distinction, but I made uh, a comment about how in that language, Moses is saying, Moses blessed, or God blessed them using the language of blessing, but that blessing was a command. 
And we typically want to separate those things out and say, well, there's no such thing as a blessing that's also a command, but there Moses is clearly combining those things. God is giving them instruction and he's telling them, this is the way that you will be blessed is by being obedient to my commandments here. Um, That section is called the cultural mandate where God gives to man what he is supposed to do. He is supposed to be fruitful and multiply, and he's supposed to have dominion over, uh, over the created order. He's supposed to rule for God in the creation that God has made as, as kind of, or, or in the place of God in what's called a vice region. So uh, God creates man in his image and says, here's what you're, you're to do for me on earth be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue the earth, have dominion over it. Okay, so we are to take the creation that God has made and bring out of it all of the things that God has put in it. So in Genesis chapter 1, over and over, you see God talking about, you know, creating the plants with their seed and the animals and, and you know, how they can create things after their kind. They're meant to be fruitful and multiply, taking God's creation and bringing out of it all the things that God had created. At the end of that uh, period, in, or at the end of that section in verse 31, God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And what what I said last week was, it wasn't just that it was very good, but we're told in the Hebrew that it was good, good. And so there's a repetition of goodness there, put it there twice, to, to really emphasize the importance of it. Can you think of anywhere else in the Bible that has a repetition of words right by each other? Where? Truly, truly, who said that? All right, you would have passed a licensure exam as well yesterday. So truly, truly, verily, verily, if you like the old King James, um, Amen, amen, is what Jesus says. Um, What you find in covenantal language is this repetition because it's really cementing for you what's supposed to happen and what's going to happen. And so here, all the way back in the Old Testament, this is, uh, you know, at the very beginning, God says it's good, good. Good, good. We're going to see this repetition a couple times in uh, chapter 2. Okay. Um, Any questions about that? All right. So skip down to chapter 2. At the end of... Let me show you more repetition here. Um, Chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished His work He had done and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all His work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Okay. So that's a little marker to tell you in the original that um, in, the, in the original they did not have markers to show you um, places like chapters and verses. And so here you have a little po- poetic interlude that shows you um, one section is ending and a new section is beginning. Uh, It's my view that here in Genesis uh, 2 that what's happening is an expansion on the sixth day of creation and the things that took place on the sixth day of creation. So you read there in Genesis 2, uh, picking up at chapter 2, verse 5, When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, 
and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Okay, so uh, again, I think this is an expansion on what we just saw in Genesis chapter 1 where uh, God creates man and woman. He takes man, and you're, you're given more details here. He takes man, he forms them. And then he breathes the breath of life in him. In the New Testament, you see Jesus after his resurrection coming to the disciples and he breathes on them in very much the same way that we see here that that Jesus breathing on the disciples was giving them new life in the spirit just as God gave here Adam life, uh, physical life through his his breath. So through that, Adam became a living creature, verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree uh, of uh, the knowledge of good and evil. And so you're shown that uh, God creates a garden. It's a beautiful, lush garden. There's wonderful plants uh, that, that are pleasing to the eye and good for food, okay? So God is providing for them everything that they need. He takes man, he puts them in the garden. Then you're given some geographical information. Moses is basically telling us where the Garden of Eden is. Um, so verse 10, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first was the, was the Pishon. It was the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah. Where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Uh, Bedlam and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. And so he is giving geographical information here. And everyone who originally would have heard this would have understood that this garden was essentially the land between uh, south of Egypt and all the way east to where the Tigris and the Euphrates is. And so this is essentially the whole land of the Fertile Crescent, if you remember that from Western civilization. That's where this land is. And so we're told that God planted a garden in the midst of this. Okay. Now think about that place now. Think about that land now. What's there right now? What is that like now? Yeah, it's desert. Okay. What was it like in the days that Moses was writing? What was that land like in the days that Moses was writing? Not quite. (laughs) It was desert. All that land from the south of Egypt all the way over to uh, the Tigris and the Euphrates, all of that land essentially was desert. So what they're reading and what we or what they were hearing or we're reading was essentially the same. They would have said, wait a second. All of this land was meant to be good, and God planted man in the middle of this. What happened to that land? That's what you're supposed to ask. What happened to this land? Why is it no longer good in this way? Not just good, but good, good. Um, Any other questions or comments about that? All right. The Lord God took the man, verse 15, and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat of it. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. 
Okay, so you're told there at the very beginning, God takes Adam, he puts him, or the man, he doesn't have the name Adam yet. Um, the word Adam, the name Adam means dirt, and that's why we say the man, dirt. Um, so he's formed out of the dirt. God takes him and he puts him in the garden. And what is the instruction that he gives to Adam? What does he tell him to do? Work it and what? Work it and keep it. These are the exact same two words that are given to the priest that Moses gives to the priest or that God gives to Moses to give to the priest when they're tending and working in the tabernacle. So the exact same words that Moses gives to, to the people or to the priest to tend and to work the tabernacle, God is telling Adam, you are to work this ground as if it is holy ground, as if you're working in a tabernacle. Uh, and so what I want you to see in this is I want you to understand that as we go through these things, there is continuity because there are things that are continuous from the Old Covenant into the New Covenant. There are things that are continuous in the covenants. A lot of these covenants are going to have similar types of language and similar things that are going on. But there's also going to be some discontinuity between those things. Um, discon- you know, so there's a bit of continuity where God tells Adam, you know, you are going to be my priest working in my temple, in my tabernacle, and it's this lush garden. You're to keep it, you're to tend it, you're to do all of these things. Bring out of it all of this glorious stuff that I have put into it. Uh, There's a bit of continuity. The discontinuity is that Adam is doing it pre-fall where no sin has entered in, and the whole reason why the tabernacle is built is because of sin. And so there's discontinuity there uh, in that. However, the work is still essentially the same. The work is to glorify God in the midst of His creation. And it's really fascinating. Uh, We're not going to have time to go into it. I don't think we will anyway. But uh, whenever the tabernacle is built, it is essentially meant to be a replica of the Garden of Eden. And uh, the the easiest way to see it is... um, when the priest walks through the Holy of Holies, he has to go through these massive, thick curtains. You know what's on those curtains? There's cherubim on the curtains. Now, you have to remember a little bit what happens in, in, um, in Genesis 3. At the end of Genesis 3, after the fall, God has placed cherubim to cover the Garden of Eden to make sure no one gets back into it. And now, on the tabernacle, he says, now you are welcome in to the Holy of Holies, past the the cherubim. You're welcome to come in through the flaming sword, but only in the ways that I have prescribed. Only in those ways. And so, if there's this big question, after, as we go through this, hopefully this is the question that keeps on coming up in your mind. How do we get back to the garden? How do we get back? How do we get to the garden? That, I mean, rock songs, songs were written about this. It's got to be an important thing. How do we get back to the garden? We want to get back to the garden. And God says, you can get back to the garden. But the only way is to go through the flaming sword of the cherubim. And the only way is through a representative. All right. I'm getting ahead of myself, but it's an important thing to remember. This is what the nature of the covenant. Covenant representation. You are going to have... A representative in the covenant. 
And here is Adam at the very beginning of creation that God has placed in Adam all of the history of mankind and all of mankind that's going to follow after him. So all of us are in Adam as God is talking to him at that point. You and I are children of Adam. We come from Adam. And Adam is our representative. He is our covenant head. He is our federal head. So that we are in Adam. And there's nothing you can do about that. And this is kind of the nature of covenant theology and why it's so important. Because if, if you don't under, you will not understand why Jesus had to come if you don't understand first that you were in Adam and God has sent Adam and he is your federal representative. And there's nothing you can do about it. Representation, okay? Or you have a representative. Um, any questions about that? It's a good question. I mean representative, basically. So re- representation, representative, legal. I mean, that's another way to look at it. Um, yeah. Is there a better way to put that? I don't understand. I mean, I've used that. I just yeah. don't really know what it means. It's like theologians, that's the word they use. But... I know. I was hoping nobody would ask me that because I don't really know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, go ask a theologian. No. Uh, it essentially, it means... Legal representation, all right? So we have the federal government, and the federal government, uh, our view of the federal government is kind of colored by bureaucracy and bureaucrats because that was, that was a late creation in our system of government that was created in the early 20th century. Um, but that wasn't the original intention of, uh, of the, the framers of the Constitution. We were supposed to have a representative form of government um, and we are to elect those representative, and they are to represent us. So that's why that's what the federal government is. It's based upon uh, legal representation, and that's why I'm using that term. And that's that's uh, this theology, covenant theology, is called federal theology for that reason, because it's about legal representation. And I mean, I we think of that, we think purely like a, a physical legal, but I would say legal spiritual representation. Yep, Barrett. Yep. There's a there's another word um, that goes along with that, like the formal standing. That that word standing that is a legal um, legal and covenantal term that that we just kind of use. It's part of our language. How do you have standing with someone? And that's asking the question: How can you as a as um, how can you, with your status and who you are, stand in the presence of someone who's greater than you? I mean, in our democratized system, you know, which is just fantastic and wonderful, we tend to not think of people as greater or lesser. Um, but in this day, in this age, they had a a really well worked out understanding of things and people that were greater and lesser. So they had a, an intrinsic knowledge of those that were greater than you. So, so, that, so much so that children couldn't even go to their fathers oftentimes and talk to their fathers. 
they had to talk to their fathers through intermediaries. That's incredible, right? Um, anyway, uh, and I'm not saying that's good. I'm just saying that's the nature of the world that they were in. So there is a, you have to have a legal standing in order to have a hearing, in order to have a place uh, or a way to stand in the presence. And, and here you're told that Adam is commanded by God in the presence of God to stand and to work in his presence. How was he able to do that? Well, this is pre-sin, and there's nothing... He does not need an intermediator, intermediator or a mediator to stand in between him and God because there's no sin to ruin that relationship, to mess up that relationship. Um, the other word, Barrett, I was thinking of is forensic. There's another word, forensic, which essentially does mean legal as well. You have a forensic standing with God or a legal standing with God. Um, I'll probably throw that out as well at some point. So, Okay. Um, when I say throw it out, I just mean I'll throw out that word and I won't define it. So now I've defined it. <laughs> We're going to move on. Okay. Um, so a couple times in this, in look, at, look back at uh, chapter 15. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it, keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. You see that? Surely eat. In the original he says, you may eat, eat. You may eat, eat of every tree. And what God is saying there is, Adam, I want you to enjoy the creation that I have made. I want you to eat of everything. Take it all. Enjoy it. Of every tree. But the garden of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall. What does it say? Surely die, and it says, you shall actually die, die. And so Adam would have understood this. I think Moses' original audience would have understood the importance of what's happening and what he's saying. You're going to eat, eat, and enjoy all of my creation, except for this one tree. Take all of it that you want, except for this one tree, because if you eat of that tree, you're going to die, die. Right? It's really serious, and that's the point that they're making. It's a serious thing. Um, repetition of language, again, uh, in that. What time do we have? All right. I've got a few more minutes, and I want to speed through this because I do want to finish the covenant of works today. The very next section, you get Adam as the federal head, as the covenant representative of God's creation, and what is he doing in the next few verses? What does God do? Well, not yet. There's something that has to happen first. He names the animals. God calls the animals to Adam. And he says, Adam, what are you going to name this animal? And, and Adam gives names to the animals. And that is his covenant right to give a name, to place a name on this thing. God has said, I'm giving you this responsibility. This is part of Adam's responsibility to be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth and have dominion over it. He is taking his covenantal right to give names to those that are in his care. Now, let me ask you this question. Yes, go ahead. No, there's not. Um, most of the... Yeah, most of the names that we have today come from, I think Aristotle was kind of the first one to do the genus, species, you know, that sort of thing. And so, yeah, we don't have any of the, that documentation, but in Semitic languages, you have 
essentially the names, the same names that can apply over um, going back for thousands of years, like very similar types of names. But a lot of the names that we use really, uh, you know, um, yeah, I don't, yeah, there's no documentation. I wouldn't say that there is. But, but in this, Adam is giving the names to those creatures, and that is a covenantal responsibility that he has. Now, let me, let me ask the question. Anywhere else in the Bible that you see names being an important thing? Anywhere in the Bible where names are? In what way? Yep. God told um, Zechariah, this is going to be your son's name. And when Elizabeth wrote that name down, or, you know, said the name, he wrote, yes, his name is John. Okay. Um, uh, okay, genealogies? Yeah, names. You ever get to those genealogies in the Bible and just kind of go, whoo, yeah, this stuff isn't important. Those names are really important because they are showing us how God spreads or, or how God's covenant, you know, extends to families. And those names are our family name. Okay. They're our genealogy. So genealogies, that's right. Anywhere else? In Matthew? Where? where? Yeah. Another genealogy, you have the name of Jesus that stands out from all of those names. And it's traced throughout history going all the way back to Abraham. All right. Yes. God reveals his name to Moses. Moses, this is hugely important. Moses says, look, you want me to go and talk to them. What am I going to tell Pharaoh, who is, in the eyes of everyone there, God? Who are you? Who who am I going to tell them has sent me? And God says, tell them I am has sent you. Yahweh has sent you. Um, It's massive because your name is your identity. And in this culture, you didn't share your name with just anyone because then they could take your name and use it. And God says, no, Moses, this is my covenantal name that I want you to share. Uh, I didn't make this point. I didn't bring this out. But in Genesis chapter 1, over and over you see that we're told that God created the heavens and the earth. God formed this. He did this. That word is by itself, and it's just God. Elohim is, is... the word that's used there. When you get to Genesis chapter 2, look at Genesis 2 and look at verse 15 again. And this is over and over and over in Genesis 2. What does it say? It says, the Lord God. And there in Genesis 2, you're told that Yahweh Elohim is doing something. What is he doing? Well, Moses is going back and he's saying, here is God who we worship, covenantal God, the personal God who has entered into relationship with us. He has given us His name that we can use. He's not just Elohim, great and powerful God, but He's Yahweh Elohim so that we can know Him and worship Him. He is inviting us here in Genesis 2 to see Him as a loving and, um, and covenant, covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. That's the invitation even in the, the use of a name. So Adam is taking all of these names and he's using his, or he's taking his authority as covenant, uh, as the head of the covenant, the representative of the covenant. He's naming the animals and then he's looking in the midst of all of these animals for a wife. 
and no wife, uh, no, no companion for him, no helper is found for him. And if you're offended by that word helper, just know that that's the same word that God uses of himself. That he says, God says, I am the helper, helper of man just as I provided a woman to help man. So God says, I am a helper to man. I help him do what he can't do. Okay, God provides to Adam a helper suitable for him. And then you get this, um, let, me, let me read through this. Let me kind of very quickly do this. Um, verse 20, the man gave names to all the livestock, to all the birds of the heaven, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into woman and brought her to man. And the man then said, at last, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Um, and so you need to kind of get the picture of what's happening here. Um, Adam has not found a helper suitable for him. And God says, okay, I'm going to make a helper for, for you. He makes Adam go into a, into a deep sleep. And that word is going to come up again um, in covenantal language, a tardema. Tardema. Um, that's the, this is kind of like when God is about to do surgery, he puts you into a tardema. That's going to be really important uh, in a couple of chapters. He puts Adam into this tardema, and then he takes Adam, and we're told that he takes a bone from his side, and we typically think of that as a rib, but a lot of commentators think that God actually split Adam in half and then took part of Adam and made him, uh, or, or made that part into woman. Uh, so it's not just, it's not just this, this simple, you know, he reaches in very, um, very clean uh, anesthetic kind of way. He pulls out part of Adam. No, this is actually very bloody surgery that's taking place. But God is the one that's doing it. He causes this tardema to fall over Adam so that he goes to sleep. And then you get this picture that Adam is asleep over there. And then what does God do? The language is that God, who created the woman, takes the woman and walks her to Adam. Where do we do that? Where do you see that? We see that in weddings, right? Where the father who created the daughter walks his daughter down the aisle and gives her away. And that's what's going on here. That's where we get that. All the way back to this ancient thing that took place where God the father is giving his daughter to Adam. And then what does Adam do when he sees her? He burst out in song. He burst out in praise. That's going to be important in a couple chapters as well. Um, in verse 24, you have Adam operating again as covenant head. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were naked and not ashamed. And so you have this covenantal union that has taken place. And in between them, there is no disagreement, no difference. Nothing is in the way of their perfect and happy union. And Moses and the people that Moses is writing to, I can just imagine husband and wife reading this next to each other going, what happened? Because it is not like that today. And that's what you're supposed to ask. What happened? In this, uh, in this you see 
God has created man in Adam, or I'm sorry, has created Adam to be the covenant head, the covenant representative. And from Adam, he, as the representative, has to be obedient. And here's the condition of the covenant. He has to be obedient to have life. And on the condition of his obedience, he will have life. But if he is disobedient, what, what is he going to have? He's going to die, die. He will have death. Okay. So um, that's the covenant of works. There's conditions. Um, I would argue that there's a bond in blood that takes place with Adam. Adam sheds his own blood for the sake of, uh, of this covenant uh, promise that's made. If Adam is successful, if Adam is obedient, he will get life. And his children will have life. If he isn't, then there's going to be death. So, cliffhanger. I'm going to leave you there because next week we're going to have to see what happens in Genesis 3. Okay? All right, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for giving us this time. uh, And I thank you, Lord, for uh, revealing yourself to us. I pray that you would continue to do so as we go into worship, that we would see Christ in his glory. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.